This is Michael Cox for the In Common Podcast. In this episode, I speak with Mike Albertus, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Chicago. We talk about Mike's most recent book, Property Without Rights, Origins and Consequences of the Property Rights Gap. In this book, Mike examines the agrarian land reforms that have occurred throughout Latin America as a vehicle to redistribute land to rural peasants. During his work, Mike observed a gap between the strength of rural land tenure we would hope to see after these reforms and what we do see on the ground. Early on in the book, Mike has a helpful discussion of the ingredients for strong land tenure and explains why each of these matter. He breaks down land tenure into three dimensions. Formality, or the extent to which rights are visibly codified. Defensibility, or the extent to which rights can be expressed on the ground and alienability, or the extent to which rights can be bought and sold in well-functioning markets. Mike's main thesis of the book is that this gap has persisted in large part because of strategic decisions made by national governments to keep rural land owners dependent on the state for their livelihood. Mike contrasts this explanation with others that he finds also plausible to varying degrees, including myopia, or a singular governmental focus on only certain aspects of rural communities, a lack of government resources to follow up on agrarian reform commitments, or an ideological aversion to aspects of land tenure such as market transactions. There were several other interesting topics that came up during our conversation, such as the process of forced collectivization that occurred during some of the reforms, and how this can change how we view communal property. But you'll have to listen to the episode to learn more. Well, um, this is great, Mike. As I just mentioned to you, um, I am really excited to talk to you about uh, particularly this book that I've been reading through for the last, I'd say, three months. It looks like it was published just a year ago, and I'm looking at the reference information entitled Property Without Rights, Origins and Consequences of the Property Rights Gap, published by Cambridge University Press, again, just last year. So 2021, congrats on that. Thank you. Um, yeah, thank you. I promise it's not 7,000 pages. It doesn't take three months to, to read through if you had to read through quick. But Oh, yeah. But, <laughs> no, I've been enjoying it. Yeah, it, it wasn't because it was a slog. It was, you know, there's always <laughs> other stuff happening. So it was like, oh, let's let's think more about like Latin America and agrarian reform and property rights today. Sure thing, yeah. Um, so, Mike, before we actually get to that book, which is largely what I want to talk to you about, I'd love to ask you about your own path to where you are today. And that can mean, you know, kind of whatever you want it to mean. It can mean your position at the University of Chicago. Um, what led you to get a PhD? I believe it was in political science, mm -hmm. is that right, from Stanford. Um, and I actually saw that you were, I was looking at your CV, you were at the, what does it refer to? The Center for the Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford. That's right. I, I was recently there for a visit because a recent guest of ours, Steve Lansing, is there now on a fellowship. Um, interesting place. Uh, yeah, beautiful area. Place. Yeah, it is beautiful. Yeah, it's one that, um, yeah, I mean, I've sort of been in and out of Stanford over the last 10 years, and it's uh, one of my favorite places at Stanford. Yeah. Yeah, I went for a walk after I had lunch there and it was just kind of serene and surreal at the same time. Yeah, yeah, you, um, I don't know if you encountered any tarantulas or anything like that. I used to run over there oh. once, once or twice to hop over some tarantulas, so. 
I'm, I can't tell if I'm happy or sad that I didn't <laughs> know about that. Cause interesting. I did see these ground squirrels, these squirrels that just seem oh, to yeah. like live on the ground. Oh yeah. That was kind of wild. It, yeah. it felt like just like the, that species had made a mistake by not wanting to climb out of danger, but like that. Right. It's amazing what you see. I had an office that was sort of facing that, that area, that park. And I saw quite a lot of wildlife uh, mm. and deer and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So Mike, when you make, you know, when you look back at your career path so far, you know, how do you make sense of it? What are the major decisions that you made or the events, um, formative or otherwise that you feel led you to be a political scientist and be focusing on the topics that you're currently engaged in? Yeah. I mean, obviously that's a, you know, a big question. Um, it's one that is, is kind of, a, if it hasn't been a direct path for me, that's for sure. So if someone would have told me, you know, 20 years ago that I would be a political scientist, a professor at the University of Chicago, studying things like property rights and land, I, I would have been quite surprised. I started, you know, I was really interested in, uh, in math. And when I was young in high school and uh, I ended up doing, and I started college um, studying electrical engineering and math as well. And, you know, I was interested, though, I became progressively more interested in political issues and political topics. Uh, and, you know, that evolved throughout my college career. And so while I ended up finishing an engineering degree, I also ended up, I was taking classes in political science and, you know, fell in with a couple of advisors that helped to guide me along that path. And that actually pushed me to consider going to graduate school in political science. And so it was something that I didn't think a lot about in advance, but ended up applying as in part a way to learn a little bit more about what that would be like. And, and I sort of loved what I saw. And so entered, you know, entered into a PhD program quickly after undergraduate. And, you know, but I went into graduate school thinking that I was going to study international relations within political science. So, you know, war between countries, and, and that kind of thing. Realism and What's all that, that stuff. Yes, all the, yeah, all these different, you know, isms and, you know, ways of thinking about international relations. But that, you know, that really shifted rather quickly within the first year that I was there at, uh, at Stanford. And it shifted in part because of, uh, of a trip that I took. I mean, I have always sort of been moved by justice and injustice. And in the first year of graduate school, we were reading a lot of work on the relationship between political regimes, that's to say democracy, dictatorship, um, and, and inequality. And a lot of the theory in political science at the time was that, you know, democracy should deliver greater equality. And, um, you know, it should channel popular demands for for redistribution and for, for greater quality. And my brother at the time was uh, doing a study abroad program in Chile and I went and visited him in the fall of my first year of graduate school. And I remember, you know, climbing up this hill in the middle of Santiago and, you know, looking down and you can see sort of the gleaming city in the background. You can see the backdrop of the Andes, but you can also see all of these slums um, and that are, you know, near the base of this hill. And, it was very clear the really stark inequalities that were present in Chilean society. And you see that elsewhere in, in Chilean society as well. In fact, it's one of the more unequal countries on earth. And so when I came back from that 
from that visit, I started looking into or thinking about that a little bit more and wondering if that was something that was sort of unique to there or if that was true throughout the Americas more broadly. And, you know, I found that it was in fact true that Latin America is you know, one of the most unequal regions on earth, if not the most unequal region on earth. Uh, and, you know, many of the countries that comprise the region are really, really, you know, one might say grossly unequal. And, you know, that's in spite of longstanding democracy in the region. And so I started thinking more about that and, and thinking about, you know, why that would be the case, uh, why it is that you had large populations that are, you know, poor or lower middle class um, and why they're not able to translate their vote into better, you know, social and economic conditions. And in the process of trying to answer that question, I realized that a lot of the the data that are out there on inequality and on redistribution are just not very good. Um, our historical data are, are lacking when it comes to that. And furthermore, the way we think about inequality and redistribution in you know, the United States and Western Europe is in thinking about things like taxes and transfers and spending and all that sort of thing. And, you know, historically, in in most of the developing world, those that's just not where most of the action is happening. Um, most of the action is happening in rural areas because most people used to live in rural areas, right? And in many countries, there are still very large portions of the population that still live in rural areas. And so, you know, in, in recognizing that fact, it got me interested in what countries have been doing with land over the course of the last century. And so, I started digging more on that and, um, you know, came into contact or, or first I, I found, you know, documents, uh, accounts from land reform agencies on land reform programs, which are these programs that, you know, involve the redistribution of, of in some cases, quite large areas of land within the country. And, uh, you know, taking land from large landowners often and granting it to smaller, um, smallholders of the land list. And, I realized in, in doing that, that actually this was a very widespread sort of phenomena and, um, and it led me to do field work throughout the region, throughout Latin America. So I spent, you know, my first field work was in, in Peru and Bolivia, and then I ended up traveling to other parts of the, the Andes. And I've been going back and forth ever since. And that, you know, really got me fascinated in sort of all things rural. Um, uh, there's really quite a, a wide world of, of things that are going on in the rural sector that a lot of um, people don't often think about if you're, you know, sort of born and raised in cities, right? And so that really opened up a whole new world to me. And, and ever since I've been working in, the, in, that, in that general area, um, you know, not exclusively, but a good portion of my work has revolved around land and, and property rights um, and people's relationship to the land. And so that's kind of, you know, what brought me to the to the present day, and I'm still I'm still pretty fascinated by these by these issues as is reflected in this most recent book. Mm. Well, this is that's a great segue into some of my first questions about the book, and I think we can kind of dive right in. So, all right, you're interested in Latin America, you're interested in land and agriculture, and it'd be great if we can set further set the context for the book. Um, by talking a bit about these agrarian reforms that have taken place. And as you say in the book, and as I had been somewhat aware of beforehand, this is, this is not exclusively a Latin American thing, but it's, 
it's something that happens a lot more in Latin America than other places. So could you talk to me about, you know, what is an agrarian reform in Latin America specifically? Sure thing, yeah. I mean, you know, agrarian reform really is a broad concept. It's something that dates back thousands of years even, and, um, and is certainly not a Latin America specific phenomena. So, you know, one of the very high level, um, you know, factoids or statistics that, that I present early in the book, which was a function of thinking about a lot of this and doing gathering a lot of data across the world, is that about a third of countries across the world in the last 100 years or so have engaged in, in large scale agrarian reforms that, that, entail, that involve you know, redistributing property from large landowners to the landless, um, you know, at least in about say 10% of the, uh, of the agricultural land in a country. And so, you know, maybe a third of the countries on earth, it's affected about a, at least a billion and a half people, I think would be a conservative estimate. And so, you know, outside of Latin America, you could think about cases like China and Russia and much of Eastern Europe, um, you know, parts of North Africa and, um, you know, Zimbabwe, uh, parts of East Asia. So there, you know, it's a, it's a broad phenomenon. It's certainly Europe as well, right? Um, you know, even Italy and Portugal conducted these types of land reforms in the latter half of the 20th century. And so it's a broad phenomenon. And in Latin America, it's been, generally speaking, pretty closely tied to the, its experience with colonialism. Um, and, you know, Spanish and, and Portuguese colonialism, and in particular the creation of uh, what were known as encomiendas and haciendas, basically large land grants from the Spanish crown to, um, to settlers uh, and to explorers. And those early, you know, those early land grants in many ways uh, persisted in, in Latin America through the independence period. And of course, you know, they, they shifted in a variety of different ways. Uh, certainly their owners um, changed over time, but in many cases, they remained, you know, more or less intact and certainly quite large up until the 20th century. Um, and so, you know, what happened in a lot of Latin American agrarian reforms in the 20th century is that with population growth and other sorts of pressures, um, there was a lot of demand for, for land reform. And uh, with a certain, you know, maybe we can get into this more later in case you're interested, but some authoritarian regimes in particular ended up conducting these land reform programs. And what they did for the most part was they seized large land holdings from these, um, you know, units, these large units of land that in some ways um, are traceable to some of the colonial era. And they redistributed that land, typically to peasants who worked for large landowners, or in other cases to peasants or peasant communities that were um, on the sidelines of these properties that had been pushed to the fringes of the agricultural economy. And so it was an enormous transformation in terms of actually physically redistributing property. I remember that part of the book where you talk about, and, and this seems to, this plays a large role in your book, the difference between regime types, more um, democratic regimes versus, versus more author, authoritarian regimes. And is a part of the story with the authoritarian regimes, is it part of what they're trying to do is kind of disenfranchise rival elites who are owning a lot of the land? Yeah, that's a that's a key element here. I mean, I think what's kind of unique and, and interesting about, you know, the 
streak of authoritarianism in the 20th century in Latin America is that, you know, in some countries, in some periods of time, it brought into power social groups and military officers, et cetera, that were not drawn from the traditional economic elite. Uh, and that was something that was pretty different from, let's say, the prior century, right? Um, and so not only were they not drawn from the traditional economic elite, but they were in certain ways threatened by the traditional economic elite. Um, and so they were at loggerheads um, and their interests co contradicted one another. And so the, the best way to ensure the stability of their power and the ability to, to remain in office and, and see their vision uh, reach fruition was to attack large landowners. And mm -hmm. the best way to do that is by seizing their assets and, and redistributing them in a way that makes it very difficult to undo. Mm. Yeah, I was I was kind of interested in following up on that because the the concepts of politics and power seem to be really important in the story that you're telling in terms of what happens after the agrarian reforms, but also in terms of what motivates them in the first place a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. um, so, okay, with that said, I'd love to tackle these two ideas that are contained in the title of the book. So one is this property rights gap, which to me was the concept that kind of stuck out the most. And this related idea of property without rights as a way of kind of expressing um, what the property rights gap is about. Could you talk to me about what the property rights gap is and its relationship to these agrarian reforms? Yeah, sure. So that is really at the heart of the book. And what I noticed in the context of writing my, my first book, uh, which was also related to, to land reform, was that you know, the regimes, the authoritarian, typically authoritarian regimes that had the motivations, the incentives to conduct these agrarian reforms. At the same time, they also had strong motivations to control their rural populations and to try and control their economies in certain ways that were beneficial to them as well. And one of the easiest ways or one of the, the most effective ways of doing that is uh, you know, by withholding property rights from people. So property rights gap as I referred to it, is really in the idea that you give people property, but you don't give them property rights over that property. So for example, a person, you know, a, let's say a, a peasant receives a plot of land, but they don't receive uh, a land title to that plot of land. Uh, the government can decide to reallocate it. They can push them off of it. It's difficult, therefore, to defend against encroachment. Um, and you know, they can't necessarily do what they want with the property either, right? So even if they uh, hold the property, they can't necessarily sell it to someone, they can't uh, lease it to someone, et cetera. So they're sort of, in some ways they're stuck, right? Uh, they have this piece of property they, they, that they want, um, but on the other hand, they can't necessarily do what they want with it over time. And that's, you know, yeah, that ends up being very, a critical part of the political story because it's very useful for for any regime, frankly, or any politician to to be in that circumstance vis-a-vis the -vis, uh, you know people living in rural areas. Okay, and so to, to make it clear, and I'm realizing I, um, this gap then is 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 between what the 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 level of rights one might think would be there based on this agrarian reform happening, and what's actually 
um, granted ultimately to the farmers on the ground. Sure. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's or, you know, another way of thinking about it is, uh, you know, uh, the discrepancy or the gap between, uh, you know, de facto ownership and mm-hmm. the rights you might actually have over the property. Right. Yeah. Because I saw, and this is the next thing I'd like to unpack with you. Um, right. So one thing that's lacking here is more formalization. And I'd like to ask you about um, what you see as the components of secure property rights that would kind of fill this gap. Um, Because it sounds like one, you know, in in one one word I would use to describe what you're saying here, Mike, is that it sounds like the peasants kind of had usurpatory rights to something that was ultimately still owned by the state. Like they had very limited rights. um, And so they could only use it for certain purposes. and really couldn't do a lot else with it. So there's three main criteria that you talk about that seem to be kind of constituting this gap. The the absence of these criteria for secure rights is what constitutes this gap in my understanding. And I'd like to like unpack your understanding of these. So one is formalization. And I think to a lot of listeners of this podcast and folks who study the commons institutions, we think about formalization a lot. And right, it's, it's partly based on this distinction you just made, right? So just there's a difference between de jure and de facto. And just because something's written down doesn't mean it's actually happening in the world. You know, I think a lot about paper parks, you know, just because you put, you know, um, some boundaries down on a piece of paper doesn't mean there's an actually enforced park there. But in this case, it sounds like part of the problem itself is it's not just that there's formalization and the reality hasn't caught up. It's that we're also just under formalized to begin with. So there's that piece and I'll I'll list the next two and then we can go through them. So the other one is defensibility or the, the fact, the idea that the rights are defensible, which was newer to me. I think about formalization all the time and defensible felt kind of like a cousin of formality, but also different. So I'd like to unpack that a bit. And then the third one, alienability, is also, again, very familiar with me. If I remember your discussion of this right, your your alienability comes, well, probably doesn't initiate, you know, Ostrom and colleagues didn't probably come up with this term initially, but um, certainly they use that same term. So you're using alienability the same way that I use it and the way a lot of commons folks do, which is kind of tradeability, the idea that you can alienate um, rights from yourself. They can be alienated from you. And so that's about having kind of well-articulated markets in land and land rights. Um, and that part I understand pretty well. And I, I mean, and I, but your take on it's different than my kind of default take. And so I'm interested in talking to you about that. And actually the fourth piece that you kind of go through is this idea of individual versus collective rights and how they relate to this idea of secure property rights, which of course folks studying the commons think about individual versus collective rights all the time. So um, can you, can we start from the beginning then about this idea of formalization? What's the concern with the under formalization of peasant rights after these agrarian reforms? Yeah, the main concern is the one that you mentioned, which is that people end up people for the most part are put in a, a situation of having usufructory rights. So, you know, the state is typically holding uh, the actual property rights. So let me give you an example, right? Where I've done a lot of work is Peru. 
So, you know, 1968, this military, uh, there's a military coup in Peru, military regime comes into power. Within a year, they start this massive agrarian reform. They end up redistributing about half of all private property in the country. For the most part, landowners aren't paid for it, and the land goes to peasants, often peasants who, who work on it. Sorry, Mike, they are or are not paid for it? For the most part, they're not paid for it. Uh, okay. To the extent that, that some are paid, they're paid with these agrarian bonds that they're actually still litigating in courts for the most part. So, so most landowners were, were never paid. Uh, to the extent anyone cashed them, they were less than pennies on the dollar. So, so land was more or less confiscated. Um, the, but from the perspective of, of peasants then, it's not like they, so they received land within these cooperatives. And what the government did is they ended up creating, they, they expropriated about 25,000 large properties. And then they stitched together these large properties into cooperatives. They created somewhere around, I think, you know, 17, 1800 or so cooperatives. Um, and so a cooperative would typically have multiple, you know, former properties in it. And then peasants would be inscribed in these cooperatives. And it was a little complicated because you could have a direct land claim in a cooperative, or you could also um, contribute labor to a cooperative and, and share in profit. So for example, a lot of indigenous communities that were at the fringes of these properties and these cooperatives ended up um, contributing labor and sharing in profits, but didn't have access to land. The complication is that, you know, or, or the idea was that, you know, at least um, the government, you know, claimed that it, at some point in the future, you know, cooperatives would, would get land ownership and then they could decide what they wanted to do with it, et cetera. Um, that was kind of, that was sort of implicit behind the form. Um, but in practice, nothing ever really happened with that. So the government maintained the property rights, they retained titles to the land. And that gave them a lot of control over what cooperatives did, right? And how land was used within cooperatives and, and even who used the land within cooperatives. So then they would send, you know, government agents into these cooperatives to uh, quote unquote help run them. And from the perspective of beneficiaries, of land beneficiaries, they didn't really have a choice over exactly how they used the land. And so that generated a lot of problems over time. People ended up getting, you know, pretty unsatisfied with that arrangement. Uh, and a lot of people ended up putting, pushing back against it. And in fact, when the military regime fell, you know, one of the first things that happened is these cooperatives started to disband, even though the state was basically hands off. And so, you know, again, from the perspective of uh, peasants who hold land, but don't hold, you know, formal property rights to the land, the difficulty is, what do you actually, what do you actually own, right? Uh, it's not entirely clear in these places. And there was a big, a big fight, basically, when these cooperatives started to disband over who owns what and who should get what within the cooperative, because it wasn't entirely clear. And so, obviously, that can be a very different, that's a very different scenario from, let's say, an agrarian reform that South Korea or Taiwan or Japan had, in which individuals were granted property rights from the get-go, and it's pretty clear what you own. Okay. So, okay, two questions occur to me. One kind of jumps ahead to, I mean, since you're talking about these cooperatives, this distinction between individual and collective rights. The first question about that is why do you, what's the incentive for the Peruvian government to distribute things collectively to cooperatives versus individually? 
Yeah, I think there were a couple of different reasons why they did that. Um, you know, and, and in the book, it's, it's, hard, it's always hard to nail down precisely what the motivations of government are, right? If you're not sitting in that room and if you don't see the record of all the conversations mm-hmm. that were going on. So that's a little bit hard to nail down. Um, you know, I think that a lot of governments, a lot of these authoritarian governments do think that rural control is quite beneficial. Um, and, and, you know, one of the advantages of not granting property rights is that people don't have the, the things they need uh, on a daily or monthly or yearly basis to sort of make it on their own autonomously. Uh, and that requires them to interact with the government um, frequently on this iterated basis. So, so it gives the government these sort of coercive levers that they could potentially use um, to keep people, to keep people, um, you know, for lack of better terms, like in line, you know, and, and doing the things that the government wants them to do. But so that's, I think, one element, but I don't think it's the only element, you know, in the Peruvian case and in many other cases, I think one of the chief concerns was that the government didn't want to simply break up all these large land holdings and have peasants, um, you know, receive receive land individually and just start subsistence farming, right? Because they were worried about, um, they were worried about economies of scale, they were worried about production, and they were worried about feeding cities. And so they were concerned with the notion that there might be, you know, major negative shocks in the short term to agricultural production, because that would really generate, you know, potential unrest in cities as well. Uh, and cities are always something that, that, that any government is worried about, uh, because people are gathered, gathered in closely, right? And it's much easier for them to, to act collectively and, and protest and things like that. Okay. Would you say the Peru case, you know, in, in you, there's this brief mention of the Soviet case and this forced collectivization of rural peasants and, and, and forced collectivization is a strong word. Is that something you also saw in the Peru case? This like the, the kind of the, the imposition of a collectivist model onto these rural systems? Yeah, I don't think it's too strong of a term to, to, to say that in the Peruvian case, I think that that's right. I mean, there's certainly evidence um, from some communities that they didn't want that. Um, and, and certainly it was not the case that peasants were clamoring for you know, cooperatives or, or collectivization or anything like that. And so that was really something that came top down. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It, it, because where I come from, I'm, I've been enculturated to th- think positively about words like collectivism, right? I study community-based natural resource management, which is all about collective action problems and how can we reconcile individual versus collective interest. When I think about a collective, my default um, affective response is to think, oh, this is about like people getting together and solving problems, et cetera. And the difference between, I think, what I imagine when I hear these words and these cases is, is that ultimately it is top down. You know, I was, I was talking to a colleague of mine about markets the other day, and he used the term, oh, like some of these markets are, are you know, there's this similar discourse about markets that they are kind of decentralized and low cost coordination mechanisms. Some of that's in your book. Um, but there are these kind of Leviathan markets where they're kind of imposed from the top down and only conducted under the auspices of a centralized agency. And this kind of reminds me of, you know, without going off on a tangent on what those are all about really, but 
it seems like these are kind of like Leviathan communities. It's kind of an awkward term, but the idea is that there's this Leviathan ultimately here that's imposing what otherwise sounds like a nice thing. Right. Right. I mean, I think there's a related, I think, yeah, I've got, I guess, a couple of reactions to that. One would would be that, you know, again, in some ways on the, on the other side of that, sort of in defense of government in certain ways, especially, you know, governments that are, you know, that struggle to a degree with their, um, you know, penetration of rural areas and ability to manage rural areas. I mean, you know, all of a sudden trying to manage uh, an economy of millions of smallholders is not necessarily an easy thing. Um, so turning on a dime like that is not something easy. I think, you know, that was also behind the government's idea of keeping things at a larger scale is that it's much easier to, to manage them, at least initially, like that. And another component of this, though, is to say, I mean, I think it would be too far. It would I would be going too far to say that everybody wanted individual rights. I don't think that's right either. I would just say that people didn't want the, the sort of government um, structures that were built. And so, and you know, I mentioned previously in the, in the case of Peru, right, that there were also, um, you know, that there were also uh, a lot of um, indigenous communities. And in, these, in those communities, some of which were inscribed in cooperatives in different ways, um, they, didn't, they didn't want uh, individual rights, right? Um, neither did they necessarily want the cooperatives as such, but what they wanted, and from their perspective, was essentially land restitution, right? So mm. you know, their land, they had been pushed off their land in many cases um, through the colonial project or in the, in the aftermath of that in, in the early independence period. And so they saw this as an opportunity to uh, recuperate ancestral lands, right? So they did not want that to be done at an individual level, but neither did they want to be forced into these, you know, kind of um, rather artificial cooperatives with uh, a lot of other groups. And so there was kind of this implicit hierarchy in many of these cooperatives where, mm. um, you know, the, the people who were best off were, were actually the workers um, were working within within the former haciendas on, on better lands and they ended up you know being more central within the cooperatives and these indigenous communities were kind of at the fringes so so there's definitely tensions with that as well okay yeah i mean at, at one point you are talking about these different basically different scales of rights from the individual to the collective and i underlined or I suppose everything's on a Kindle now, so I highlighted um, this part where you say, really, there's, it's, it's important not to think about any one of these scales as being inherently more secure than the other ones. I really agree with that conclusion because I feel like there is this, we, we get stuck in these, in these categories and we get stuck in these kind of abstract arguments about these categories, like, oh, individual is better or collective is better, et cetera. And ultimately, what those categories can mean on the ground varies a lot. And so it's not good to just have an a priori assumption that one of these scales is going to lead to more secure rights and subsequently better outcomes, which is something else I want to talk to you about. Like, why do we care about secure property rights? It's kind of the next part of your story. Um, so getting back to formalization and channeling a little bit of James Scott, which I do <laughs> most episodes, yeah, and, and and you cite him, 
a bit. And, and I remember when I was looking at this morning, you, you know, you're talking about the cadastral maps. And of, and of course, he talks about cadastral maps and in, in seeing like a state. Um, and, and Scott is talking about a lot of what Scott's talking about in that book to me is about the idea of legibility. And, you know, you use that term as well. And that's, that plays a strong role for the state in terms of, you know, what is the state trying to do? And, and, and it's kind of reflected in what you were just saying is the state's trying to make its jurisdictions legible so it can kind of manage what it's, what, what it's trying to do with this huge territory. Scott also makes arguments, you know, he's um, got another book, I think it's called like the art of not being governed. You know, he's got a, quite a, a strong like anarchist streak in him. And from his line of thinking, you know, you're making this argument about the relationship between formalization and empowerment. That formalization can help empower local peasants. And that seems both plausible, but also not necessarily true to me in the, in the kind of, a, and it'd be interesting if you're reading of Scott is also different here, right? Like formalization from the state can be its own way of the state exerting power. And I think one of the ways in which rural peasants and other folks can resist state power is by resisting the formalization of their, inf their otherwise informal traditions and customs, et cetera. So is that, what do you think about that potential complication of this relationship between formalization, state power and rural empowerment? Yeah, I think that's a sh I think that's a smart way of kind of complicating this the simple the simple relationship right that we typically think about. I guess I would say that you know my first reaction would be that um, that it sort of depends on context mm -hmm. and it depends on how rural inhabitants uh, live and you know what markets they participate in. And to what extent do they implicitly depend on the state and the state's infrastructure for different things? And so, you know, if, if communities are, or regions are, are effectively sort of autonomous from the state, they can really get what they want, um, you know, at, at arm's length from the state, then I can see that argument being, um, you know, I can, I can, I can see the validity of that that argument, right? In that context. On the other hand, if people depend on the state for um, for certain aspects of their livelihoods, or they sell into markets that uh, have to pass under the state's nose, or they depend on you know subsidies or infrastructure in certain ways, and there's no way that you can entirely skirt around state agents, then I think the relationship with the state is just fundamentally a different one and one that you can't simply ignore. Mm. And so, you know, one of the, one of the, I guess, powerful, you know, images that I sort of have in my head from doing field work in various places, I'm thinking about, you know, uh, whether it's, you know, Lima, Peru or La Paz in Bolivia or even Caracas in Venezuela is this image of, you know, you know, rural inhabitants, uh, peasants, basically in land reform agencies, more or less pounding on the desk and saying, you know, I want it, I want my papers. 
I want to mm-hmm. see, I want to see, uh, you know, the papers that you that you have on me, and I want to see, you know, what are the different, you know, elements of um, of information that you've got, and the the proof of my of my ownership because I I need that and I want that. And so, you know, whether it's because I'm in a dispute with somebody else or whether it's because, you know, I'm in a, in a, um, I need it for a loan or whatever it might be, but people are going to the state and they're actually demanding to see, to see papers and that they believe that those are, are valuable, right? Um, and so that's something I think that, that demonstrates the, the power of that, at least in certain circumstances. And again, I don't think that that's necessarily true in all circumstances. I think where you've got, you know, where the state is quite distant and really plays no role in this, or whether you, or in places where you have really strong and longstanding kind of customary law or customary rule, I don't think you necessarily need this sort of formalization in those cases. Mm. But in, in most circumstances, I think, I think it is important. Hmm. No, I mean, that makes sense to me, Mike, if you're if you're in a space that's dominated by state power formalization, which is the language of the state is important for you to have be empowered within that state dominated space. Because I'm, I'm mostly reiterating what you were saying. It also reminds me of, you know, po- political discourses and fights over citizenship, right? And citizenship is a is a formalization. Oh, you know, you can be thought of that as you're formalizing citizenship. And that is, you know, sounds similar to me in terms of like, okay, like I'm, I'm, I, I need my papers. I need like the, the documents that would grant me power in this system is also, it's also about rights, right? Like citizenship is important because it grants you rights. Um, okay. So, uh, defensibility, can, can we talk about this? I'm, I'm trying to think about like what, what the question here really is. Cause it's, how I guess the, I'll start with how is defensibility different from formalization? Is it kind of a informal version of formal rights? It's about like what's happening on the ground in terms of are, are your rights actually respected, or is that not a good read on it? I think that's I think that's true to a degree. Maybe it's a, a little bit more than that though. I think of it in terms of sort of enforcement and enforceability, right? So in Latin America, as well as in many other parts of the world, you know, land cadastres, property registries have historically been either either absent um, or something of a nightmare in terms of how they're organized, right? And so, you know, um, or maybe they're organized at a regional level um, and not at a national level, and regions vary in, in how well they kind of record rights, right? So the complication there is that, you know, you may have uh, formal rights um, to your property, but you may not be able to actually defend those rights, whether it's in a court of law or or whether it's against anybody else who's trying to transgress against those rights, right? Mm -hmm. So, well, you know, let's imagine that, um, you know, a mining company comes in and they wanna, um, and they, decide to try and push people off the land and, uh, and start mining. And then the question is, is the community, the community able to, um, you know, go to a court of law or what have you and appeal to their, their formal rights, or would those maybe not, not be recognized? And again, there's many contexts in which you can imagine this being, this being important, but in, in, in Latin America, yeah, it's very, it's certainly very important. Um, again, because of how, 
you know, cadastres and, and registers haven't necessarily been very orderly. So again, you might have a property title, but it might not be it might not be enforceable. And so, you know, one you know one example of this, let's say, is in uh, in the context of Colombia, right? So if you think about Colombia was engaged in a longstanding program of basically titling frontier lands to people, um, and people would get you know, a title to their frontier land, but then often they would get pushed off of it um, and somebody else would, would claim that land. And, you know, if the original claimant um, would, you know, only had a piece of paper and someone else came along and they were connected to a judge or something like that, mm-hmm. they would be able to usurp that, that right, right? Um, and especially if you can imagine if somebody's pushed off for a, pe- a period of time, if registries aren't, aren't orderly, if the title was never in the registry, who's to know whose land it initially was, right? So right. it's kind of funny. I mean, if you actually go back to, um, if, you, if you start to push the clock back far enough in a lot of countries, property rights are to some degree kind of a house of cards. I mean, they're, they're built on top of prior property rights. And if those prior property rights are not well-defined or, or um, you know, or very clear, then the whole thing starts to unravel. Mm. Another interesting um, case of that is, is Venezuela in more recent years. And so they passed this land reform law in 2005 and they, they required, um, in order to, um, you know, to demonstrate ownership there, you had to prove property, a continuous chain of property title back to 1848, um, which is to say you had to know all the prior owners on that land. And basically nobody could do that because the record keeping was not very good. And as a result, you know, you might have uh, property title, but good luck when it comes to defensibility. Mm, okay. So... I want to um, actually quote a part of uh, the, the book here to introduce this third criterion for t- tenure security, which is alienability, which I mentioned, but also start to talk about why the property rights gap, why this tenure insecurity matters. Um, and there's there's several arguments actually, I think at play here. So at, at one point you say, you know, tenure matters because if you have tenure security, in your words, people can confidently make productive investments when property rights are secure because they will not worry about their property or investment. Might they will not worry that their property or investment might be arbitrarily seized? So that's the first part, and that that makes a lot of sense to me. It's this kind of shadow of the future idea that I'm used to, based on you know the discourses about the tragedy of the commons. Why do we need ownership? Well, we need it because if no one's no one owns anything, then no one can benefit from, you know, future, um, no one can benefit in the future from their stewardship decisions now from in, in the kind of tragedy commons narrative. So that part felt very familiar to me. And you go on and say, and the transparent and enforceable nature of ownership and interest enable people to leverage their property as collateral to gain access to financing in order to improve their assets or invest in human capital, such as education. So that was a newer argument to me. And that second half of that um, quotation also relates to this issue of alienability in my mind. So when I encounter alienability, again, I, I, it, I, we all have like these default biases, or it honestly feels like you have less of them than I do based on reading your book. But when I think about alienability, 
I, there's a part of me that does worry because in a lot of systems, alienability, and you mentioned this, you say at some point, not everyone loves alienability because, and you know, one of the big reasons is that it leads to rights consolidation. It leads, it can lead to a more unequal distribution of the rights because markets are an allocation mechanism, right? And markets as an allocation mechanism reward folks with access to those markets and with the wealth to pay for them, pay for the rights that are for sale. And so that's the story that is that leads the train when I in my mind um, when I think about alienability. But you have this um, other argument about why alienability is also a good thing. And it does seem to, and, I, and, and, and this also relates to my experience, Mike, in the Dominican Republic. I've heard this argument that the agrarian reform farmers in the DR don't have the rights. They don't have kind of, um, I think it's called titulo definitivo, like definitive title. They don't have that. And without that, you can't sell your land. And without that title, you also can't get a bank loan. And I'd never actually made these connections. And so that was one of the ways in which your book did some sense-making for me. So it seems like the benefit of alienability is that it helps you ultimately, you can, it, if you can sell your land, you can then therefore use the land as collateral and that helps you get a bank loan, which you can then use to make investments for the, in, for the future of your land. Am I on the right track? Yeah, totally. Yeah, okay. totally. I would, I would agree with that. Um, you know, with both pieces, both uh, some of the downsides of alienability as well as some of the upsides, right? I mean, one of the, one of the interesting cases I think that, that brings that across um, pretty effectively is, is Mexico. And so, you know, Mexico um, also engaged in this enormous program of agrarian reform throughout the course of the 20th century. Um, and then, and then started to basically, you know, shut it down in the, in the early 1990s and started, you know, with the help of the IMF um, and the, the World Bank in particular, um, started to, um, to formalize property. And people didn't want, um, you know, initially through the agrarian reform, it was communities that were titled as opposed to individuals, right? So again, um, you know, sort of done collectively. And that was the, the HELO system that was involved in that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the mm -hmm. EDO system. And then through this uh, reform known as Procede, what the government did is they ended up titling, um, they ended up layering rights. They titled communities um, as well as plots within communities, as well as houses within communities. And they also left it up to communities to decide whether um, by vote of the community, they wanted to split up the community um, that became that became legal. Um, and you know, devolve lands to individuals, and, and very few communities did that. Um, but communities really did want the rights, the, the layered rights that they got. And so I think they were they were many communities are nervous about this this alien ability, right? Um, totally. On the other hand, there's no question that I think that it really does help with uh, some of the things you mentioned, and this is probably. You know, it's well, it's certainly the terrain of, of economics, right? And thinking about, you know, leveraging your property as collateral for, for loans and credits and things like that. And there's a lot of, of evidence of that being really effective, including for, for rural inhabitants, right? To make investments in things for the longer term. Mm. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm reminded of, there's also this discourse about rights offering flexibility and, 
in the Western US, there are systems where you can lease out water rights and that can help folks to kind of, if they have extra, then they can lease it out and then they can lease it from someone else to get extra water rights if they need it. And that makes sense to me. And of course, it's my concerns about total alienability are moderated by the fact that it's a lease and not a sale. Um, but yeah, and it, it does relate to this distinction between individual and collective rights and this layering. And it seems to me one of the main places you see this tension, right? There's when I was doing my fieldwork in New Mexico a long time ago for, for my dissertation, I was working with these acequia irrigation systems there, and they were very concerned about the saleability of water rights. And, and some of these acequias were formalizing at the community level bylaws that would essentially made the, the water common property in the sense that the community owned it and the individuals had usufructory rights to that water and couldn't sell water outside of the community without community agreement. And so there is this tension, I think, between the common and individual interest that emerges around this issue of alienation of rights. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. That's, I think, I think that's pretty common in, in many of these circumstances. Um, and certainly because, you know, through agrarian reforms, formal rights are often not given and they're often vested with the state and groups are put into, you know, different collective forms of, of holding, that tension has played out almost everywhere in these mm. agrarian reforms. Okay, so, so in a bit, I want to get to kind of the, what I perceive to be like the most central question of the book, which is why does this property gap persist? Like what, what causes it, what leads it to it? Um, but to finish up on this question of why property rights and property security matters, I want to make sure we don't gloss over this other aspect of, well, so it, it, there's kind of instrumental reasons why it matters, right? So if, if I have more secure property rights, I can, um, I'm, I'm more encouraged to make investments in my land. My discount rate is lower. So I think more about the future. I make more investments, et cetera. And there's a part of me that wants to have a co whole conversation about, I mean, in, in the Dominican Republic, you know, the agricultural systems we work in are pretty developed, actually. They're pretty industrialized. And in my own mind, I, I wonder like, well, do we want the farmers to be able to take out the loans that they can to kind of further entrench themselves in this industrialized farming system? And, and that leads to this whole discourse of like, well, you know, is everything is, is you know, is all development created equal? <laughs> Having just mentioned that, my main question is actually about this issue of kind of rural empowerment per se. I mean, does that play a role in... Because I feel like we can often get tied up in these kind of instrumentalist views of the importance of property rights, like, oh, it helps me take care of my land. But it's also simply about the distribution of power in a system. Um, and so does that, is that important to you in, in thinking about the importance of tenure security, that it's, it, it also simply represents uh, a different distribution of power in these communities and societies? I think so. Yeah, I think that's really important. Um, you know, for example, one of the findings that I have in my book is that countries that generate these property rights gaps and that sit on these property rights gaps for a long time end up generating really severe urban-rural inequality, and they often end up effectively constructing barriers um, to 
migration as well, right, from rural to urban areas, that becomes more difficult, whether because it's sort of more formally enforced, like uh, like in like in China, or whether it's a de facto thing that is a consequence of poverty in rural areas, right? So I think that granting people, you know, property rights is a form of rural empowerment. Uh, and what's kind of ironic is when you when you do it and you and you do it right, uh, oftentimes some of these you know, there's a big transformation in the countryside and oftentimes some of the stickiest rural issues end up resolving themselves over time. So again, the point to the, the poster children for land reform success in let's say Taiwan, South Korea, Japan, what you had there is again, recipients received property rights and, um, you know, and farmers ended up doing well and for themselves. And they ended up being able to afford to send their kids to school instead of keeping them in the fields. Uh, and within a couple of generations, that really led to total transformation of those economies. Hmm. Um, and so I think that is a story of, of rural empowerment. Uh, in fact, you know, urbanization, industrialization, development there was, was, was largely on the back in, in, in certain ways of rural empowerment. I mean, certainly, you know, the, the, the other side of the coin is, um, you know what happens on the on the state side of things, right? And so, if the power if if power and control lies with the, the state instead at the expense of of rural groups, then it's much easier to engage in these sorts of divide and conquer policies, and to um, you know set certain tariff barriers and subsidies in ways that favor uh, that favor cities over rural areas and then make it difficult for um, rural producers to succeed. Okay. So to move to um, kind of the, the, the central question here that you're, that you're getting at in the book is, you know, what, what, are the, what are the explanations available to us and what's the, um, I guess what I want to say best explanation for why these property right gaps persist and, and why are they created and why do they persist, right? And you offer up several different potentially competing, potentially complementary explanations for this. And, and I, by my count, there are four of them. One is this myopia, which again reminded me a bit of James Scott in terms of the myopia of the state. Maybe that's an, an unhelpful projection, but that's where my brain went. Um, ideology in terms of, okay, kind of what I was talking about just now uh, in terms of alienability, right? The response that, okay, well, we don't want to open up markets because that's not going to be good. We don't want to have uh, well-functioning markets in these rights. Um, the one that actually, you know, my brain latched onto the most, which is lack of resources. You know, when, again, when I've been in the Dominican Republic, I mean, I'm also biased because I work in the fisheries sector there and, and the, the government's even more absent in the fisheries sector than it is in the agricultural sector. The naive, but I think potentially correct hypothesis there is that there's a lot more money in the ag sector than in the artisanal fishing sector, which maybe encourages more government involvement. Um, and so that's, if you had asked me before I read your book, you know, what, what explains this the most, my brain would have jumped to the lack of resources first. And the explanation that you that you conclude is the best explanation is this kind of political manipulation and politically motivated power oriented um 
explanation that it, that it's about the state creating and maintaining its position vis-a-vis -vis these other um, rural actors. And we've kind of been heading in that direction already. Um, and you have um, some panel data that you collected, which if we had a whole other conversation about methods, I would love to hear about that because it's it sounds like quite a Herculean task to have collected all of these data about these different countries over time and kind of measuring, you know, the different aspects, you know, your dependent variables, independent variables. Okay, like how do we actually measure tenure security and the property rates gap, et cetera, as opposed to just talk about them? Um, and then you have this case study of Peru, which we've already been talking about a little bit. So we'll see whether we have time to get into any kind of methods, but can we talk about these different explanations um, to kind of, you know, we've got a little over 20 minutes, maybe more for the, for the interview. And I wanna make sure that we talk about these competing explanations for the, for the majority of that. Can we walk through the first three explanations and what are the mechanisms there a little bit? So my, myopia, ideology, and lack of resources, like why are those reasonable explanations for the, the presentation and the persistence of this property gap? Yeah, I think all of these are actually reasonable explanations. And actually in, in the book, I mean, I find evidence for some of them as well you know, sort of at a, at a more systematic level, but I think all of them operate to a degree in different cases. You know, in terms of the first one, this myopia explanation, you know, it's really one in which either governments maybe didn't know about the positive consequences of providing property rights, or they faced competing goals. Things like I mentioned in the Peruvian case, let's say maintaining economies of scale in agriculture um, or avoiding land reconstitution or re reconcentration. So those would be some reasons why governments might not want to, to grant property rights up gate. And I think there's, you know, there's, there are elements of, of all of that that we see in the, in the cases, right? It's certainly the case that conceptions of property rights and our understanding of property rights has shifted pretty radically throughout the course of the last hundred years. And so the, the paradigm of property rights now is very different from what it, what it used to be, right? Um, and I think governments are right to a degree to be concerned about some of the dislocations, the short-term dislocations of you know, major restructuring, uh, whether it's in the countryside or industry or, or elsewhere, right? So that's the first explanation. Again, I think you do see that in, in some places, especially this, this point about maintaining economies of scale in agriculture. The second one about ideology, I think that's also an important one that we see evidence for. There's no question that many governments were uh, for ideological reasons, um, you know, averse to the notion of alienability and, um, and supportive of the notion of collective rights, right? So particularly communist states, those would be obvious ones in which, um, you know, the government felt like um, it was important to have the, the means of production owned by people more generally um, and to, to have resources um, held at a collective level as opposed to at an individual level. The, you know, I think it was also useful for a lot of those governments actually in, in terms of trying to kickstart certain forms of industrial development because some of them ended up basically squeezing the agricultural sector and using surplus from that to, to, to develop uh, you know, the industrial sector. Soviet Union is a good example of that. Um, the third one is about uh, lack of resources that you mentioned, right? So again, I think this, this holds weight in certain cases, um, but of course it's, 
you know, it's difficult for some governments that are that are relatively weak um, to actually marshal the resources to be able to create a land cadaster, create um, you know property registries, keep them updated, inscribe people in them, uh, map out property, etc. That's not an easy task for government. But you know, I guess I have the least sympathy in some ways for that argument, and the reason is because. A lot of the countries that actually implemented these large agrarian reforms um, were not especially strong governments, right? But they, through the course of these agrarian reforms, they were able to confront the most powerful economic elites in their country. They were able to take their land um, and they were able to give it to other people. And then they interacted with, uh, you know, with rural inhabitants for, in some cases, decades. So if you think about a country like Bolivia, you think about a country that, that most people would say, okay, historically very weak state, not capable of doing many things, but completely overturned how agriculture was conducted in that country starting in the 1950s through the 1980s. And so that's not an easy state task. Um, and, and so you know, I think that the governments that are able to do that aren't necessarily able to perfectly provide property rights, but they, um, in many cases, are able to do a pretty good job. Hmm. And so, you know, those are the different, those are the, you know, the kind of other arguments out there for why you might get these property rights gaps in land. Okay, and, and um, one follow-up there about limited resources and myopia. Is there, can we say there's a connection there between those? Because I wonder whether, right, like myopia is about not thinking about a lot of the aspects of the system, focusing on a couple different goals you have at the expense of maybe a lot of other goals. And in, right, a standard critique, I think, of centralized governance is that it, you know, and partly because of a, ultimately a limitation, it doesn't have infinite resources, even if it has a lot. And so it's going to try to economize on how it engages with its jurisdictions. And the way you do that is by being myopic. Does that connection make sense to you? It does. It does make sense to me. It does make sense to me. And I do think that there's a natural connection to it, too. And you're right to say that, you know, no government has infinite resources, right? And no government is going to say, I'm going to, you know, shunt 95% of my GDP or something like that into, um, into or my tax revenue into um, agriculture, right? Into structuring and monitoring agriculture. I mean, that's not realistic, right? And so I, I think that, that every government is going to try and economize to a degree on things. And so that does militate in favor of these economies of scale. But I think, again, one very thing that's quite notable, right, is that many countries have closed their property rights gaps. Um, and it's not like they did so when they were exceptionally strong um, states. Many of them are still weak. Um, many of them did so at times during times of economic crisis when, when resources were not plentiful. And so I think many states can actually do it without, um, without a lot of, I think, it's, I think it's quite possible for many okay. states to actually get a hand on that. All right. So Mike, can we turn now to, you know, some of the main conclusions of your book, this final explanation that you were exploring, can you talk about that and also talk about the methods that you implemented to ultimately test whether that was, um, another or the most important explanation for this property rights gap phenomenon? Good thing. Yeah, you're, you're um, you know, referring to basically the, the principal argument that I make or, is that, you know, there's something that's overlooked in those other three explanations, which is the incentives of government, right, to actually withhold property rights. And so, 
you know, we might think that property rights are, are provided where they're able to be provided, but in many cases, I find that um, when in fact they're able to be provided, they are not. And there's a strong political logic to that. So, you know, as we've talked about a couple of times um, already, just in, in brief, you know, a lack of property rights um, grants governments leverage over people. Um, it becomes difficult to, you know, if, if you, if the countryside is dependent in any way on the state, right? Again, whether through, uh, you know, markets and infrastructure um, and, you know, credits, loans, et cetera, then they have to play nice with uh, the government, right? And if you don't have property rights, then you've got to play nice with the government constantly because they've always got, you know, the sort of sort of Damocles over your head, right? Uh, if it comes down, you're in big trouble. And so, you know, you have to sort of toe the line and it requires, you know, and they can, you know, of course there's a, the ultimate idea here is to, is to generate political um, quiescence in the countryside, if not in some cases support, right? Whether, whether in the context of, um, you know, elections or a lack of protest or whatever it is that the government wants, um, it's easier to get it when, you know, you need, um, you need the support of the government, right? So let's say every year you need fertilizers, but you don't have the money to get it. So you're gonna to turn to a state agency that, subsidize, that, that provides subsidized fertilizer. You need seed, uh, you're not able to get it. You've got to turn to a state agency that provides subsidized seed. There are no local banks um, that are willing to loan in your sector uh, because there's not property rights there. And so you can't use your property as collateral. And then the state creates a uh, you know, state bank to, um, to loan out credits, right? And so you turn to the state bank for that. And you know, when it comes to transferring your property, you know, maybe you need state agents, but you don't have a formal title. And so you've got to rely on the state on that. And so it creates this sort of dependency over time that's very useful for, for uh, you know, politically for, for regimes um, and, and governments. And, and that's really a fundamental component of the, the argument in the, in the book. And again, you know, some, some governments really sit on this for quite a long time, even when they have the capacity to grant property rights. Okay. Um, so a follow up on that, you know, one of the interesting things about this explanation and that it was, you know, previously underemphasized is that you're, it's based on, on focusing on the incentives of governmental actors. And in my field where our locus of attention is on communities and individuals, so fishers, farmers, et cetera. The, what the government's doing is often this exogenous factor that affects the incentives of the people we talk to or that I talk to, but it's still more of a black box. We don't, we're not thinking about, you know, the incentives of the government actors themselves and why they're doing what they're doing. And I feel like we do this all the time. It's so easy to stop, think, to not think about the fact that someone else in our lives or in a study that we're conducting also is in a position, that position gives them incentives. And so it's kind of applying the same lens, economic, psychological, what have you, to this other set of actors that you've been applying to your, the actors that you usually care about understanding all along. So my question for you is, you know, again, as I said, in the literature that I'm used to, this is something we don't focus on a lot, a lot of the time is the incentives of governmental actors in, in, in your 
branch of political science, is this also something that's not often focused on? And is that part of the reason why you think this explanation was, was underemphasized? Yeah, I think that, I mean, in this particular, obviously it's a major, it's a major focus in political science, right? Mm -hmm. um, but it's not been, it's not really been unpacked in this way in the context of thinking about property rights and redistribution. And so I think that's where the, the new emphasis in this book really, really comes in. Um, yeah, I, I think that's the, that's the intervention here. Okay. Um, and so the final, you know, a couple of final questions I want to make sure I ask you, Mike, is about the methods. Could you talk a bit about, I mean, so there is this case study of Peru. Could you talk about how you went about constructing this data set? I mean, we don't have to do a deep dive, but there, are, there will be some listeners who are, you know, who know what regressions are and um, would be interested in kind of hearing a bit about how you went about actually testing these questions. Could you talk a bit about how you collected the data and, and ultimately analyzed it to, to answer this question of what is the what are the explanations for um, this gap? And actually, we also want to talk a bit about, I think, about, again, about like authoritarian versus democratic regimes, which seems to be another part of like your conclusions based on that analysis. Sure thing. Yeah, I mean, you know, you mentioned earlier it was a Herculean effort, and it was, in fact. I mean, it's it's basically, uh, you know, kind of a decade-long project uh, gathering all these data, right? So a lot of it, um, you know, the sort of country-level data that I gathered is, is data that I typically gathered from archives or directly from land reform agencies um, who have maintained records on the lands that they have expropriated and the lands that they've redistributed. And sometimes those records are actually really pretty good. Um, in the, so there's this kind of high level, higher level data, um, you know, that has to be paired with then data on property rights. And so that comes um, also from other, you know, both from archival sources, as well as from, um, you know, legal sources and legislation and things like that. And then there are, um, you know, kind of individual level case studies, right? So you said, for example, as um, I do a deep dive in Peru, in which I look at this at a much more localized level. And in that case, you know, that entailed having to reconstruct what happened with the agrarian reform, you know, what lands were actually expropriated, what lands were redistributed. Um, and the government kept pretty meticulous records on that. Uh, you know, one thing that's kind of great about some of these um, military governments from the perspective of um, you know, studying them is that they're nothing if not meticulous. And mm. so they actually published each and every one of these expropriation decrees and um, with details on you know, where the land was at, who the, who the landowner was and how large the land holding was and all that kind of stuff. And so you know, I was able to reconstruct that. Um, and, and then I was able to pair that data with subsequent data on um, some of Peru's land titling agencies. So, you know, the land reform happened in the 70s, come the 1990s, 2000s, the government tried to close the property rights gap and, you know, formalize a lot of this land um, and grant land titles to people. And so I was able to get data from, from those agencies as well and, and you know, localize it and overlay it effectively with uh, 
um, the data on where land was expropriated and redistributed and kind of reconstruct where this property rights gap was, um, was closed most quickly in places where it lingered longer. And then I tied that to some of the outcomes um, in terms of things like, you know, inequality and poverty and development, things like that. Mm. And so you mentioned earlier in this interview, Mike, that you've, you've spent a fair amount of time in some of these countries. Can you, how many countries did you ultimately study here? So the, this book covers, you know, in terms of the, the data that I've been talking about here, it covers all of Latin America um, for back to, you know, the early 1900s. And I conducted research myself in about half of those countries. Um, and then I did, you know, archival research and, um, you know, was in contact with land reform agencies and many of the others. Mm. And, you know, so again, it was a it was a pretty big effort. And I also have in the book, you know, for those um, listeners who might be interested in some other regions of the world as well. Right. So there's some some, you know, I, I did this at a, at a less sort of detailed level um, across the across the globe as well, relying on a lot of secondary sources. And, and I actually did conduct research in um, in China and Portugal and, and um you know, later on in other parts of Europe as well. So, so there's data from those places too, um, which kind of square with what I find in, in Latin America. Mm. I mean, what, what, what version of this question do I want to ask? I'm, I just want to kind of explain that it's an, it's an impressive amount of work that seems to just have to be behind this just to get to all these different places. And, you know, people I imagine aren't just giving you the data, even if it's there, you kind of have to be a person that they're like, okay, well, fine, I'll give it to you. Yeah, I sat on a lot of benches outside of offices until people couldn't ignore me anymore. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah. I don't know if it was the engineer in me or what that that led to this sort of systematic approach in which I would, you know, wouldn't take no for an answer and wanted to systemize systematize everything. But um, but yeah, it it required, you know, building relationships and actually being there and uh, yeah, and, and, and really learning from people as well, right? Because a mm. lot of this, I learned a ton just by talking to folks who had been part of the process and, and people who manage these programs and people who are affected by these programs. I, there's this one great um, you know, experience that I had in, in Peru in the Ministry of Agriculture's archives there. I met this one bureaucrat who had been working there um, since the 1960s. Uh, and in fact, the government expropriated his family's land while he was working for them. And he invited me over to his, uh, his house at one point and he showed me this duffel bag full of documents of all the different property titles and all the proof of ownership and all this kind of stuff. And he himself had been trying to be, um, had been seeking compensation from the state for his property for like 30 years, uh, unsuccessfully from inside the same agency that that expropriated him. So is this kind of, you know, it's these sort of aha moments or these these moments in which you you understand that kind of the human side of this and um, and in which you also learn a lot about the the process and mistakes. Uh, those are some of the some of the things that stick with me most. Okay. So Mike, what do you think is are there some logical next steps that you want to take based on this project or are you heading in a totally new direction or what's next for you based on what we've been talking about or haven't talked about? Yeah. 
I've been trying to hatch a new book project actually that that looks at um, you know more broadly how the um, trajectory of land allocation and land reallocation um, policies has impacted some of the stickiest problems that society is facing today, and so. You know, the main outcomes I'm thinking about focusing on, uh, some of which are kind of near and dear to your heart, right? So one of them is the, uh, is the environmental consequences of a lot of these programs. And so I think across the board, a lot of these land reforms created, you know, they, de they depleted resources, they tore up ecosystems, they led to, um, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of mismanagement of the environment. And so that's one of the downsides of a lot of these programs, even where they were run well, um, they, they still generated a lot of environmental destruction. So that's one thing, you know, a lot of them also generated, um, you know, these really pernicious forms of, uh, of gender inequality. So at the time at which a lot mm. of these brain reform programs happened, they directed land to men, right? And, and ultimately men were the ones who, who became the beneficiaries, male heads of household. And then later on, men were titled if these property gaps were closed. And so a lot of countries are still dealing with this really lopsided distribution of property ownership in terms of gender. And, you know, also some of these programs also created really, um, really um, kind of gross racial inequalities, right? Some of them actually help to redress racial, um, racial inequities, but, but others really embedded them quite deeply. So if you think about in, um, in the case of the United States, right? The, um, you know, frontier settlement and land reallocation through the Homestead Act and, and other programs uh, really generated this, um, you know, these sort of gross, gross uh, racial hierarchies between uh, white, white settlers uh, and Native Americans. Obviously, there was, you know, the construction of that in the South uh, through slavery as well. And then finally, in terms of thinking about underdevelopment, so one of the things, and this is a little bit closer to the book project and what got me thinking about this to begin with, but um, or the, the previous book that we've been talking about here, which is that a lot of these programs generated underdevelopment in the long term. So they, you know, where property rights gaps were created, they paved the way for economic stagnation and uh, different forms of underdevelopment. And so, you know, the, the new book project is trying to look at all these different outcomes and then thinking about how some of the um, policies that are on the table right now in terms of the management of, of land could help to redress some of those, um, some of those problems that were generated initially. Wow. I mean, yeah, that's a really interesting, important set of ideas. I'll look forward to reading the next book. Great. Thanks. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun chatting and uh, thanks for inviting me. Yeah. Um, Mike, before we wrap up, are there any final threads, things you want to make sure that we talk about that we didn't get to? Not off the top of my head. I mean, I guess maybe I would ask you a question, which is, uh, you know, what were maybe one or two things that resonated with you most um, from the book in terms of, you said you were doing some work as not only in fisheries, but also in the rice sector in the Dominican Republic. Is there mm -hmm. one or two things that you encountered there that you felt like the book shed, shed interesting light on? Well, one, at least one of the, the first thing that comes to mind is something I mentioned earlier in the conversation, which is about the role of the importance of alienability mm -hmm. um, was one of the more challenging parts for me, because again, I have maybe too much of a default negative valence about alienability because of what I've, you know, because of the consolidation of rights issue. 
And the last time I was in the Dominican Republic, I was talking to this fellow who works at the agrarian, the Dominican Agrarian Institute. He works there and he was saying that he was concerned about this kind of consolidation that seems to be happening. And so for me, that's like foremost in my mind about um, a challenge that's being faced there. But then, and I'd always heard about this, this the need of to, to, to have stronger titles so that you could get a loan. And I'd never really connected some of those dots about the fact that what, what you know, this, the alienability is what's connecting the stronger right with, you know, the ability to use your land as collateral to ultimately get your loan. And um, that was probably the single most important thing for me in terms of like making sense, help having your book help me make sense of my own field site. Um, the, the formalization too, I mean, the kind of double-edged sword that formalization can be in terms of both helping people or harming them, depending on what's being, what about them is being formalized and by whom and whether or not they're again, like already a bit under the thumb of the state or not. Um, that was another part that kind of made my brain do a lot of work in a good way. Great. Yeah, no, but it, I mean, again, like I really lo loved reading the book. It's been one of my favorite parts of this kind of podcast project as it is a nice excuse to do some interesting reading and then talk to interesting authors. That's great. Well, yeah, thanks again for inviting me. It was a fun conversation. I really appreciate it. It's nice to, to unpack it and also to be, you know, pushed along certain certain dimensions, right, to make me think uh, a little bit mm -hmm. more about some of these elements and how they might uh, relate to one another, especially from the perspective of a different field. So that's great. Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, there's so much talk about interdisciplinarity. And it's enough work just to get like different social scientists to talk to each other, let alone like in my field, we talk about, oh, like social ecological systems. And it's like, okay, but the social part is, there's a lot of different groups in that word that don't necessarily get along or talk to each other all that, all that right. often. Right. Yeah, no, that's definitely, that's definitely true. I mean, it's the same in terms of studying property rights, right? There's this sort of political, a bit of a political science approach, and then there's an economics approach, and those don't always square with one another. And so... One of the things that was interesting for me in writing this book was learning and thinking a lot more about how those do, in fact, relate to one another, bringing kind of the power element again into this property rights. Yeah. I mean, I think something else that I'm still trying to digest is I've been reading a little bit more about the Soviet case. This, again, this forced collectivization and the kind of Leviathan common property regime is something I'm just needing to think about more. You know, and, and you mentioned you know, issues of um, inequality in, in the United States. And one of the things I've been thinking about a lot recently is the, the emphasis, the overriding emphasis that US law and policy gives to individual property instead of uh, common property and how that, that systematically disenfranchises um, a lot of folks who historically, including Native Americans, um, had dependent on some common property rights regimes. It's, it's very difficult to own things collectively in the United States. Mm -hmm. And so for me, there has been this discourse about the importance of collective property as a form of traditional and local empowerment. And so entertaining this you know, alternative discourse about how forced collectivization as being something, you know, it, it, the common denominator maybe for me is that what's problematic is being, is this top-down imposition of a particular regime, regardless, that's the common problematic denominator. 
And so maybe that matters more than like what you're calling the regime, whether it's individual or collectivist. Because again, most of the systems I go to, even if they are have common property, they all have individual property too. You don't make a system work without, you know, in my case, both of them. Like you might, the pastures might be common property, but like the individual farm fields are always individual. Mm-hmm. And so again, I think it's needing to get beyond this kind of panacea mentality, we call it in my field of, okay, this is the best thing. And so we're going to promote that type of property versus the other ones. It's kind of, as you said, it, it's, it's, well, I don't, I, I was going to say, I was, you said it's all about context. You said some version of that. And that can sound like this, like gloss. It's just like, well, fine. Co- context matters again, but ultimately that's where we end up, right? Is that context does matter. And you kind of need, we do need to be reminded of that to get away from wanting to adhere to one set of institutions or one way of doing things over another. And I think that does relate to our kind of disciplinary and intellectual commitments, right? Like economists do have one of more of a way of one way of thinking about property rights. They do have a central tendency and so do political scientists and find this variation around those central tendencies, but the central tendencies are still there. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and that actually does bring us back to Jim Scott, right? Because I think that states are not very good at this kind of context-dependent stuff, right? Whether no. they're proposing collectivization from above or whether they're they're promoting, you know, individual property rights for all, right? Uh, it's you know uh, those those are are very um, those are very sort of exclusionary. Um, kinds of systems in the sense that like the government has one particular idea about how it wants uh, property rights to be structured. And if you're, if you're not within that framework, then, um, then you're in trouble. Right. And so, uh, yeah, governments are rarely good at this kind of context dependent stuff. Yeah. Well, on that note, yeah. Um, this is really great, Mike. Again, yeah. I, I appreciate your time. Um, this was a great conversation. I learned a lot from the conversation and from reading your book. Cool. Great. Yeah. Thanks again for reaching out. It was a lot of fun. Um, and yeah, hopefully we'll cross paths again soon. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, you can find more episodes as well as entries in our blog on our website, incommonpodcast.org. The Incommon Podcast is the official podcast of the International Association for the Study of the Commons, or IASC.